0: Welcome to the special edition of Kick the Dogma, where I'm teasing a new format for the podcast, allowing me to overlay some additional outside research to enhance the discussion opened by the main interview. I didn't get any extra third-party interview snippets for this episode, but I'm excited about the potential of this format to create a more informationally dense episode while simultaneously shortening the duration. Today's topic is the intangible economy, what it means for competition, policy, inequality, valuation, and so much more. I'm your host, John Emmerich. For 50 years, the percentage of investment in corporate America and elsewhere allocated to intangible assets has risen slowly but steadily as a percentage of the total. An increasingly intangible rich economy has a meaningful impact on the way companies are valued, how startups are financed, how economic data is measured and reported and the effectiveness of policymakers' tools to manage the economy. A paper from McKinsey states that over the past 25 years, the share of total investment in intangibles increased by 29% in the United States and 10 European countries. Rising investment in intangibles has been linked with increasing total factor productivity of entire economies. This could indicate that the deceleration of productivity growth over the past decade partly reflects a slowdown in investment in intangible assets. That is one of the many contentions of co-authors Jonathan Haskell and Stian Westlake in their fascinating new book, Restarting the Future, How to Fix the Intangible Economy. I caught up with Professor Haskell for the New Books Network, and here is a portion of our discussion.
1: Thank you very much for having me on, John. I'm Jonathan Haskell. I'm a professor of economics at Imperial College, which is in London, England, and part-time at the Bank of England. Uh, And my book is co-written with my co author Stian Westlake, who's the chief executive officer of the Royal Statistical Society, also based in London.
0: Perfect. Thank you so much for talking to us today. The two of you also co-author the 2018 book, Capitalism Without Capital, The Rise of the Intangible Economy, which I had the pleasure of reading before I read the new book. That wasn't that long ago. What was the impetus for coming up with the second book?
1: Thanks very much, John. Yeah, in the first book, we documented, well, as it very much says on the title, how the intangible economy uh, was a new feature, possibly a slightly unnoticed feature, uh, and was a description of how the economy has changed over the last sort of 20, 30 years. Um, And in the second book, we've documented some of the features which we think are interesting and have followed from that. Uh, The main one of which is that the transition from a tangible to an intangible economy seemed to stall around the time of the financial crisis and has carried on, we think, stalling as well. So what we've tried to write in the new book is a little bit of revision about why we think the intangible economy is important, but mostly an attempt to try to describe why we think the intangible economy or that transition to the intangible economy has stalled somewhat and what we might do about it.
0: And you're very much carving out new territory here with this topic as a, within economics. Going back to the first book, as an introduction, how are intangible assets defined? What do you want the reader to think about when they hear intangible assets? And what does an intangible rich economy look like just from a high level?
1: No, absolutely. Here's a way to think about it. Think about companies of old. Think about steel companies, um, the, the beginnings of car companies. They both used and produced very tangible things. That is to say, they used machines, they used buildings, they used vehicles, and they produced very tangible kind of output, tons of steel. Uh, um, uh, numbers of cars. Now think about modern day companies. Take for example the top companies by market value. They are companies like Microsoft or Apple or Google uh, or Amazon Uh, and ask yourself what do those companies use to produce and what do they actually produce? So if you think about Google What they produce is nothing very tangible at all. In fact, something very intangible. Namely, they have a reputation for reliable search engines uh, and they have a reputation for giving you you a very fast answer. And, and, And in order to produce those intangible goods, they're using very intangible assets, which is to say they're using software, they're using algorithms they're using very fast computers. The fast computers is probably more of a tangible asset. Having said said that, but the software and the databases and the algorithms which run on all of that are very much intangible. So, what we uh, think is is interesting and important is that the economy has undergone a transition from uh, that very tangible activity to the much more intangible activity. And and in in the hope, John, of making that kind of salient to many of your listeners, there's a sense in which the very podcast and the very profession that you have as a podcast host and that I have as a university lecturer is a very intangible kind of thing. We're dealing in ideas, we're dealing in in, in knowledge, hopefully new knowledge, <laughs> uh, <coughs> we're dealing in establishing those kinds of networks and establishing that kind of reputation. Um, all of those things are very intangible and we think that's the an important transition at which modern economies have been on for a number of years now
0: the authors necessarily create a vernacular around this new topic to facilitate discussion for instance the book goes over four characteristics of intangible assets from scalability and sunk cost to spillovers and synergies i was particularly interested in the latter two
1: yeah so spillovers um you know, let's go back to a kind of technology example, which would be the iPhone. If listeners cast their mind back to what smartphones looked like before the iPhone, they had these kind of weird keyboards on and, you know, little aerials which would stick out and you had to sort of flip open, flip open, you know, coverings on them and speak into the uh, into the resulting uh, uh, a bit of plastic, which you flipped open and all that kind of thing. Within about 18 months of the launch of the iPhone, basically every smartphone looked like the iPhone. So that's an example of a spillover of an intangible asset. The intangible asset was the design of the iPhone. And the spillover was that basically within 18 months, as I was saying, kind of more or less everybody took up uh, uh, that design. So, so that, that would be an example of a Of a spillover. A synergy comes from the combination of these different intangible assets together. So, again, if I stick with an Apple example, um, what's I think kind of amazing about the success of the iPhone is not actually just the design. But it is the synergies, the combination of all the different intangible assets that make up, that kind of go into the iPhone. So it's the combination of the soft, the Apple software that runs it. It's the combination of the various databases, which do all the optimization. It's the combination of that with the supply chain management. I mentioned Tim Cook earlier on, um, who's a great expert on all this sort of stuff. Um, so it's a combination of all those different things. So all of those synergies... Uh, combined together. And and we think that the the, the addition of those synergies sums up to more than the sum of the parts, if if you see what I mean. Uh, And that's the sort of foundation of success um, for these uh, incredibly uh, successful firms.
0: Is there a role in positive spillovers for ESG mandates that I may have read about somewhere in the book?
1: Yes. um, So we think of ESG as being in some ways, a sort of sub-case of intangibles. I know that's a bit imperialistic of me to sort of, <laughs> to sort of uh, you know, shovel everything into an intangibles framework. So I'm afraid you're going to have to be patient, but l- let me try to defend myself for a second. Um, so if I think of environmental, you know, social and governance I- I- issues, um, now it's very difficult, of course, to measure all of these things. And there's rightly, I think, a bit of cynicism about how the choice of measures ob- obscures the um, ability of people uh, uh, to compare different ESG metrics. But but broadly speaking, quite a lot of those ESG metrics sort of fit within an intangibles sort of measure. So if you think about governance, for example, um, good governance is part of managing a company, it's part of managing the supply chain, I mentioned that earlier on, it's part of the kind of organizational capital, if you will, um, of a firm. So that would be one example of that. The, 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 on the um, sort of social issues, uh, many ESG metrics have training actually uh, as a measure of those sort of social issues. Many other ESG metrics have got a lot of software measurement to them as well, actually, um, the amount that uh, companies spend, for example, on software security and those kind of issues as well. So um, I think of ESG as fitting quite naturally into an intangibles framework. It's part of the branding and the reputation. So it's an important intangible. Asset, Uh, and as I say, John, even some of the ESG metrics are, in in many ways, almost exactly the kind of intangible metrics uh, that we're trying to measure as well.
0: Um, Let's jump for a second to a big topic: public funding of research and development, an area that a lot of analysts think about when talking about intangible assets. You write about public funding for intangibles not working due to perverse rules or outdated models. And as luck would have it, as I was reading your first book a little over a month ago. There was an article in The Economist about Britain's Advanced Research and Invention Agency, a research funding organization. It's a government agency, but it claims among its strengths to be independent from government interference. Is that relevant to this topic? What do you think about that entity? I half expected to see your names associated
1: in some way as I started through the
0: first couple of paragraphs of the article
1: you you you're very kind john um you, you know I, I have to stress that uh, Stian westlake my co-author and i you know we're very important but we're not that important <laughs> so, um, I, <laughs> so I, 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 I um so on the ARPA, no it's a, it's a terrific example actually so um hopefully this will help people uh, uh, sort of navigate through that um so let's step back for a second so even the most fervent kind of market economist would admit that there is a role for public support for R&D and innovation. And it comes from the spillover idea. Um, if you think about a lot of the very basic science that people do, I don't know, go back to the space program, think about the material science uh, that was done in the space program, which, uh, you know, developed the heat shields for the rockets and all that kind of thing, or, or you know, the, 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 the email type of applications, which came at, which came out of, DARPA those things spill over to everybody else you know the email protocols are made freely available the formulae for um, uh, uh, um, you you know for for some of these materials and so forth is made freely available as well you can just go and look them up in a book so that will be an example of the spillover like the design I was describing before and so um, it's going to be really really hard to, in fact, impossible, to expect firms to fund that kind of research because they're not going to be able to appropriate the benefits from it. I mean, that's, right. that, there's nothing horrible about that. I'm not, I'm not, you know, I'm neither defending, you know, wicked capitalists nor backing ardent socialists. It's simply a statement uh, of the fact that uh, these knowledge goods have got these properties um, that they can spill over, like I say, design the look and feel of that I can spill over in that way. Um, so, so uh, as I say that that 's the sort of um, the kind of conceptual point behind the public funding. Um, now, you, you then might say, "Oh well, hold on a moment shouldn 't we then have loads and loads and loads of public funding because after all, there are all the <clears throat> ways these spillovers uh, are going to occur, and uh, uh, you know what what should stop you from ever wanting to limit those spillovers in the first place um, and the issue with that is that if you have public funding. You you have to have a sort of centralised series of decision makers. Um, And the minute you have a centralised series of decision makers who are going to decide that they're going to fund Project X and not Project Y, and they're going to uh, have these metrics and not those metrics, Then you provoke all manner of what economists rather politely call rent seeking activities, which is to say people attempt to influence those types of decisions in the way that might potentially suit them. So you've got to have rules and regulations when you have centralized decision-making, but those rules and regulations come with a cost, uh, which is that it might be difficult to have the kind of variety and have all the sort of flexibility and so forth that you might need. Uh, and those things you might need for to get more synergies. So the example of ARPA, which is a British um, agency uh, sort of copying uh, the American DARPA uh, is an attempt to have the centralized public funding in order to help with those um, spillovers, but to make it sort of flexible enough so that um, these uh, synergies uh, might occur uh, and to let scientists, um, you know, uh, uh, work uh, uh, um, between different disciplines and so forth um, in in an attempt to try to encourage that other dimension um, of intangibles. The, The
0: most compelling example to me Not being a technologist was the idea of funding open source software projects that seemed to make the the, the most sense given everything we've just talked about. Has that started happening yet? Are there target rich areas in the economy for such a program as open source software?
1: Yeah, so open source software, John, is an excellent example. Um, I mean, it is astonishing. Shane Greenstein at Harvard has done some astonishing work on the extent to which open source software, um, pa- like Apache, for example, powers vast amounts uh, of the Internet. I mean, we literally, you know, we couldn't do this. Pod- we couldn't record this podcast and people couldn't listen to the recording uh, without a lot of that open source software. So right. um, I think that is an example um, in terms of what else is on the horizon. Um, Maybe after the um, COVID um, outbreak and the invention of these new generation of vaccines, um, many of which are now public information, maybe that might be the equivalent of a little bit of open source software as well. In other words, it would open up uh, the spillovers um, that would potentially um, be, be, be you know, v- very beneficial. Um, and if public funding uh, can benefit all of that, um, that would be a really good thing. But I want to caution against john um being able to sort of pick um various uh, uh, sort of topics and areas which are ripe for ex- you know ex- exploitation because it's just so difficult to guess what a successful innovation is going to be and we talk in the book a little bit about the wheelie suitcase as an example of that
0: next i got professor haskell talking about patent trolls patent duration in the greater issue of IP protection generally?
1: I'm not gonna give you as good an answer as that question deserves because I think these things are somewhat dependent. We are dependent upon the sector involved and the technology involved. We are broadly speaking, I think in the camp of having a bit less IP protection rather than more. I think we worry a lot um, about the prospect of um, a lot of essentially wasteful activity that is chasing around um, IP and that it is attempting, you know, essentially, these are people who are arguing uh, not about the expanding the size of the cake, but breaking up the cake in some way and being able to block, uh, you you know, development by being excessively litigious and and so forth. And of course, you know, John, as you know, this isn't a new problem. So the, the Wright brothers... Um, who you know gloriously invented powered flight were basically able to hold up the development of the early aviation industry in the u s because they had a very broad patent uh, on control services on wings, and they had actually as it turned out a rather poor invention uh, for control services on wings, wing warping, which essentially twisted the wings around, but they were managed they managed to hold up. Um, by claiming that that patent, and that patent had been rather broadly drawn, they managed to hold up the development of aerolons, which were a much more um, efficient and much better um, invention, uh, until they were successfully challenged. Essentially, um, the military told them to sort of stop all of that. So um, I, I think we don't want to see all of that. And this may be an area, funnily enough, where Europe might be a little bit ahead of the US, because in Europe... We don't have software patents, uh, and the general scope of patenting is much narrower uh, than it is in the U.S. And do you
0: see any trends towards companies choosing not to patent a certain technology where you're, as you said, you're disclosing your intellectual property, at least in the past you were, you've talked about how, in the book, some patents Are being structured so they're revealing actually very little while trying Mm. to lock up a technology but uh, uh, there seems to be a a trade-off where the first mover advantage seems to be as powerful in some instances in uh, as the intellectual uh, technology patent
1: indeed and and i think john it comes back to the synergies point that actually what a lot of these patent trolls are is they are they are the exact opposite of synergies. In other words, they are just one, often a legal firm, who owns one patent or a, a thicket of patents and tries to hold everything up. Whereas what many companies are is is, as I say, they are the opposite of that, which is to say they may or may not have some patents, but they also have the other intangible assets that go with that, the ability to distribute and manufacture, the reputation for uh, and, and the relationships and so forth that they've built up. So um, I, I think the reason why, I, I'm not sure we've observed companies going for less patents or more patents, but I think thinking about the synergies between these intangible assets is the way to think about Um, how those companies are going to deploy their intellectual uh, property, but in a way that means it's not going to necessarily leak out to um, other firms.
0: A big issue for economic watchers and policymakers in an intangible rich economy is that of measurement for things like economic growth, inflation, and productivity. Professor Haskell.
1: I, I I think we are moving slowly to measure GDP better, uh, but we're moving fairly slowly. That's the difficulty. And um, I think the way to think about it is that um, if we're gonna measure GDP, we've got to measure investment correctly because investment is one of the important aspects of GDP. uh, and uh, uh, And it's the thing which is gonna bring future prosperity Uh, for our nations Um, and, and, and so when you say well how are we going to measure investment most of the investment measurement that we do in national accounts which is to say behind GDP was all devised basically in the 1930s if you come to America everybody tells you it was devised by a Harvard economist called Simon Kuznets Uh, If you stay in England, everybody tells you that it was devised by Keynes. But in England, England, we think Keynes invented absolutely everything. So um, (laughs) I'm sure it was Kuznets rather than Keynes. But anyway, um, uh, those kind of measurements of investment relied on the kind of uh, questionnaires and surveys that essentially uh, we still do today, which is you send out a questionnaire to, I don't know, an airline. And you say to them, how much uh, are you buying? How many vehicles are you buying? They've got to buy all these refueling vehicles. How many aircraft are you buying? They've got to buy all of these aircraft. Uh, And that's a pretty good measure. Therefore, the kind of investment that they're doing. And then you cross check it by going to Boeing or going to the specialist, uh, you you know, airport and, uh, you know, airline vehicle fuel tanks and all the fuel manufacturers and all that kind of thing. Um, And you cross check it that way. So you've got a nice check and you can get a dollars and cents feel for the amount of investment that's going on. However, if you go to airlines um, uh, nowadays or, or, or talk a little bit more to airlines and you go to their IT company, uh, IT side, uh, you will find out that they're writing enormous amounts of software so that we can do all the booking that we do and they can coordinate the baggage and roster the crews, which is all very complicated and all that kind of thing. Um, so we need to know, therefore, how much they're investing in that software, because after all, their websites and so forth, like their, like their aircraft, are an enduring source uh, of important assets, which are going to help you, you know keep the planes in the air and keep 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 the customers coming. Um, so we've got to be a little bit more canny as a statistical authority in finding out how much they're investing in those rather more intangible assets, because they're rather harder to ask about. And two more things on that, John, if I may. One is. To some extent, companies, let's take the example of software, they often buy in software, actually. So it's a little bit like saying, you know, how many, uh, uh, you know, how many aircraft are you buying? Uh, You say, what's your dollars and cents spending on software? The tricky bit is many companies, of course, have got a lot of in-house software writers um, who who, who develop uh, the software that they're doing. So they're asking them how much software they're buying in. They'll say, well, nothing, because we do it all in-house, which means that we've got to go and Um, if we want to measure investment, uh, measure the in-house activities. Right. And where that takes you is if you think about these intangible assets, as I say, the marketing, the design and so forth, they are often things which firms do in-house because after all, that's what they're good at. They're good at putting all this stuff together or they're particularly good at design or they're particularly good at, you know, writing some software and then marketing it. So the way that national accounts and GDP measures investment then um, has had to move over the years to as well as asking how much they're buying from the outside, asking how much they're spending inside the firms uh, and therefore getting a fix on how much intangible investment they're doing. And statistical agencies have therefore had to get a little bit more, a bit more sort of foxy, if I may use that word, a little bit more... um, uh, they've they've had to use different ways and do different things uh, in order to collect those those kind of numbers. But they're moving in that in that direction. So that in, uh, GDP has got some of those things in it, um, but by no means all. We think.
0: At the risk of being redundant, a similar set of questions about productivity, which is so important downstream for standard of living and what's on everyone's mind right now, inflation. Do we measure productivity uh, properly that, you know, there's I, I every once in a while I see an article about is technology investing making us more productive as a country or not? Uh, how do you measure productivity in an intangible a rich economy? I'd imagine it's a little more difficult than in an agricultural economy where it was pretty straightforward. But how, how are we doing on measurement of productivity? Um
1: we are do, uh, we, we, a difficult subject, which we're attacking the best we can, I think, is the answer. Um, so in, in this economy, in the intangible rich economy, we're going to need to measure a much broader range of outputs than we would do in an, in an agricultural economy. Uh, and we're going to need to measure the inputs to those things, again, which are going to be broader done within firms, all the kind of things we've been discussing. Uh uh, and so i mean it's going to be a harder task um but it's but you know we we can try to get at it to a certain extent um so the productivity of entertainment, for example, um, is a very tricky one uh, to measure. Uh, you know, uh, we all we could measure the revenues of Disney. We can measure the box office uh, uh, takes of people, uh, the, 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 of people going to the movies and so forth. Um, but equally, once people start watching movies at home or even creating their own movies on YouTube and posting them themselves. Then we've got a lot of activity in the economy, which is in the intangible kind of, you know, knowledge, entertainment creation space, um, but going to be difficult to measure as output. So I think there is a concern that these measurement issues uh, are getting harder and are getting harder and harder. Um, uh, not least because uh, we're doing many more activities at home than we used to. Uh, And that's a little bit similar to what I was saying earlier on, John, about how it's much harder to measure activities within a firm, for the reasons I was saying earlier on. In the same way, it's harder to measure activities within the household. Uh, And uh, so there are all those challenges uh, there as well. Uh, So we may well be uh, under measuring productivity um, fairly severely, actually.
0: Let's talk for a second about, emerging economies i was mm. working in the wireless industry in the very early days in the in the mid 90s and it was interesting to observe that for countries that didn't already have a wired nation side either through the air or cable buried in the ground their transition to wireless was so fast and furious and it changed countries seemingly overnight so what what does the rise of the intangible economy look like in an emerging market is uh, to the extent that it could be even more problematic or maybe they have some advantages because they're not overcoming legacy systems. Maybe there's an advantage from building things from scratch.
1: Yeah. I, I mean, this is very well known, isn't it, John, in banking, where if you speak to legacy banks... The only thing that they complain about, well, they complain about a lot of things, but they particularly (laughs) complain about the fact that um, some idiot wrote a stupid piece of software five years ago, and they now have to write the software which connects to the software five years ago. So all of those legacy kind of issues are absolutely first order issues. Um, Many developing countries don't face those issues because five years ago they didn't have anything. Um, (laughs) And you see this in particular. um, I, 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 I don't know, John, if this is what you're referring to. Countries like Kenya, for example, who never had a fixed phone line system when the technology of cell phones, what in Britain we call mobile phones, when the technology of mobile phone cell phones came along, it became a bit of a no-brainer really. There was no point in digging up the entire country and laying all of these cable. Uh, They were actually able to network up the entire country uh, using mobile, using cell technology. Um, So there was an example actually of where the 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 lack of a legacy uh, rather helped them where that takes you, of course, um, is the point that that, that, that many of these intangible assets that we talk about do need to ride on top of a tangible infrastructure. So, again, going back to the Kenya example, um, m- banking on your mobile phone, on your cell phone uh, in Kenya uh, is the way that everybody does banking there. Nobody's actually got a bank account and nobody you know, sends money. But but there's, a, there's an amazing development um, not done by any centralized authority or anything like that, essentially by the private sector. Um, of uh, uh, banking uh, via uh, mobile phones, via cell phones. And and that, of course, going back to the earlier example, what do the banks do? In in that context, they're writing software, they're using databases and all of that. Uh, Those are intangible assets, but they are riding on top of the very tangible assets uh, that is the uh, cell phone system. So there's an interaction between those things. uh, And once uh, developing countries have got that tangible infrastructure, then we think that the intangible assets uh, can be scaled up quickly. And in the case, as I say, of Kenyan banking, uh, that's seen, I I think, a tremendous improvement, actually, in the quality of people's lives, uh, because essentially they, they, they can go straight to that combination of tangible and intangible assets and get those very valuable banking services.
0: A larger topic in the book is about infrastructure in the broadest sense, how we live, rural versus urban, and networking issues?
1: Yeah. Um, you know, one thing which has undermined the conventional wisdom around cities and around the kind of uh, economies that come from agglomeration uh, is the pandemic. Um, because you might say, well, we've managed perfectly well uh, without having to live in cities. L- lots of people have moved away from, you know, Manhattan and built up areas like that and have now got a perfectly nice life, um, you know, doing work up and down the screen. Um, We think at least maybe this is us in stodgy old Britain. I don't know. Um, We think that that is an evolution, actually, to more working outside of cities. But we think that the economic advantages, as I say, of the synergies and the spillovers are still going to be there and might be difficult uh, to keep uh, on the screen. That said anything that improves going back to the kenya example john i think anything improves the network issues that you were mentioning earlier on uh, is going to help break down some of those uh, barriers so you know we're going to have more people be able to participate if networks are better and 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 um, uh, videos are better and all those kinds of things uh, it, it, all that stuff uh, are going to break it should break down those barriers um, and help with that kind of uh, inequality so i think that's one of the sort of Infrastructure changes uh, that we need to try to improve things a bit.
0: After using the Harry Potter franchise to explain the power of intangible assets, I asked him what changes he would make if he had absolute power. Since you since you brought up Harry Potter, if uh, you had a magic wand or absolute power for a day, <laughs> what, right. what what would you what are the system design changes uh, that you would make to strike the right balance between? quantity and quality of investment and feel and don't be shy about using the UK as as the example again
1: I think we need so a number of things um, I think we need to extend support from the for the intangible economy uh, a little bit further um, one issue in the UK uh, and I think this is a us issue as well John so I think this may resonate with your US listeners is the quality of education training um, is has been a just an ongoing worry uh, in the UK and an o- ongoing feeling in the UK uh, that something has gone wrong there. And, and training by firms seems to us to be a rather neglected area. After all, if a firm trains somebody uh, and they go off elsewhere, that's exactly like those kind of spillovers that we were talking about earlier right, on the spillovers of right. design. Um, uh, Now, firms do train people uh, uh, for reasons which economists often don't quite understand uh, because they may not benefit from it. Um, But we think giving credit to firms who train people would be helpful as well because it would help solve those kind of spillover issues. So I think that's one thing. I I, I think the second thing um, that I would say. Um, would be about the planning um again i won 't repeat what I just said but but again, visitors to Britain will notice the remarkable inequality uh, between London and other. Uh, uh, other places in the UK. And it's just, I, look, listen, I live in London, so <laughs> I have those advantages. But it just isn't fair, it seems to me, uh, that other places are rather disadvantaged. Um, I, I'll say one other thing, which again is a little bit sort of techie, so forgive me for being a little bit in the weeds, but it's around banking reform. And it's around getting banks to start lending more to intangible intensive businesses. About 80% of bank lending in the UK is for mortgages and about another 5% is for uh, commercial real estate. That's 85% is basically going on property. Uh, There's remarkably little funding going on uh, of actual businesses and some reforms around um, pension funds here uh, who are very um, uh, held back in their regulation about the amount that they can invest essentially uh, in intangible intensive businesses. uh, Those would go a very, very long way. Those reforms in the 1970s in the US A number of scholars have traced actually to the success of Silicon Valley uh, and the venture capital ecosystem that is around there. Uh, And so if we could have a bit of that in the UK, I think that would be really helpful.
0: Okay. Well, Professor Haskell, what would a a smarter interviewer than myself have asked you uh, before I let you off uh, about this book or or what else do you want to say about the book to further entice people to get it it when it comes out? um it's
1: ve- it's very kind of you and you've been a very smart interviewer um i guess i would just repeat if i may john the point about the top companies the point about how the economy has changed enormously again t- t- so that this is sort of salient uh, to people um i have in front of me the accountants price Pricewater- water coopers um do every year the ranking of the world's top companies and the top five companies in their latest numbers, which is March 2021. That's last year. the, The stuff will come out very soon. The top five companies were Apple, Saudi Aramco, Microsoft, Amazon and Google, Facebook is number six. Uh, And again, back to what I was saying before, if I may, John, Saudi Aramco, of course, is that's the Saudi Arabian oil and gas company. They are a very tangible company. They've got oil refineries and oil rigs and vehicles to move them around and ships and all that kind of very, very tangible. But those other companies, Apple, Microsoft, Amazon, Google, Facebook, they're entirely intangible companies. And so we think that uh, understanding the intangible world uh, is going to be a really good way in to understanding the modern world uh, and modern businesses and the prospects for our economy. And if our book, our books, both of our books help people to uh, uh, have a little bit more understanding, uh, we'd be really pleased.
0: To hear the full interview with Jonathan Haskell, where we talk more about inequality, universal basic income, monetary authorities and their tools, check out the new books network website or wherever you listen to your podcasts and search for the New Books Network podcast and then the episode, Restarting the Future, or search on the author, Jonathan Haskell, or search for me as host, John Emmerich. I'll leave links to the New Books Network site and the articles referenced in the opening of the episode in the episode notes, as well as on our website, ktdpod.com. Thanks for checking in. Until next time.